What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Okay, it's recording. Okay, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. Her name is Minnie Alford, and she published a book back in March 29th of last year, 2018, about a serial killer who operated in eastern Washington, Spokane, uh, primarily, his name was Robert Yates, and the title of her book is Robert Yates from Darkness to Light. And she wrote a very detailed book about um, his his uh, his life and experience, in a, and also from a Christian perspective about how he found some type of salvation or redemption in jail. And she's also been in communication with other um, other very disturbing people who are in jails throughout uh, the United States and. We can talk more in detail about that. Minnie, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Awesome. Thanks for uh, agreeing to the interview. I appreciate it. So the book, uh, yeah, so it was a very detailed book. How did you become interested in the subject of Robert Yates and uh, his his serial killer past? Well, Robert was kind of intriguing to me because actually his grandmother lives just a few towns down or lived uh, from my hometown where I'm at here in Tennessee. And what got me onto Robert was his grandmother murdered his grandfather uh, back in 1945. I guess most people would say out of the blue. They said uh, from the family's perspective there had never been any inclinations or abuse and she woke up one morning and chopped up Robert's grandfather with uh, an axe. And that was what brought me into Robert, was reading about the murders this close to where I'm at um, in my state. And I reached out to Robert, and he was uh, very open, and he and I began to talk, and we kind of uh, garnered, I guess what you'd say, professional relationship if I was willing to tell his stories he, or his story, his words, he was willing to hand me over all of his handwritten journals and, and diaries. So the book is based completely from his handwritten information, which I, I found forthcoming as much as I guess you can with a, a serial killer. And when, when did that communication or contact begin? Robert and I started talking, actually it'll be four years ago this month, and uh, we just found each other to be... I, I told him what I was writing, and, and uh, he told me about his experience and with being in the military, and he had reserved all, you know, received all these medals and different things, but then um, how he became, became to just kind of grow to a darker side of humanity and how one thing led to another. And, you know, I asked him, I said, do you think there's any heredity, you know, involved with you becoming a serial killer and your grandmother being a killer? And he said he didn't think so, but that kind of piqued my interest and was my initial reach out to Robert um, initially. So. Gotcha. And it is a very detailed book. It's very well written. But you kind of move back and forth be- oh, you're welcome. between his life, a very detailed accounting of his upbringing and life, and then his 
in court to reveal he was he was tried in Spokane, but also for two other murders that happened in 1975, I believe, in Walla Walla, yeah. Washington. And so he was after he was transferred and given the death penalty in Walla Walla. But uh, maybe what we can do is talk about how his early life experiences influenced him to become a, a serial killer. Right, right. You know, in his first first admitted killings in back in 1975 with uh, the young couple, he was just out in the woods, from what he told me, hunting one day, and uh, came upon them, and he just literally decided to shoot them. And he shot them both execution style, uh, tried to cover them up with some brush, and, you know, that went unsolved for quite some time. And the young man was the only known man Robert killed. The other, all of his other victims were, were women. And I asked him, you know, do you have any, think, what was that driver what hit you at that moment? And he said he just wasn't sure. It was like a darkness almost came over him. And at that moment, he decided to kill them. And it's, I said, to me, that's almost like, a, I said, is that a, a feeling of arrogance or entitlement? And he said it was just a sense of evil that he felt he had that right at that moment to take them out of this life. And I thought that was very telling. Interesting. And that, he was also, he was kind of an outdoors man. He had worked as a correctional officer inside a jail. He said that that had really influenced him and, and the, he was an insight right. into a very dark, evil kind of environment, right? It did. He's actually serving. He was initially on death row, but this, uh, early, at the end of last year, they commuted all the sentences to life without the possibility of parole. But he's actually serving his sentence in the prison. He was a correctional officer wow. in, back wow. in 1975 before he joined the Army in 77. Remarkable. How the worm turns, I guess. That's a that's an interesting kind of uh, circular. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And uh, I mean, he uh, he did admit, or he did sign a plea agreement that he did commit sixteen murders. But do you think that there might have been more than that? Oh, absolutely. I I really believe uh, when he was in the service in Germany uh, that I think he killed some that were never linked to him. I also have wondered when he he served in Haiti and Somalia as well during the peacekeeping missions. Uh, I've wondered if he hadn't killed. And then, of course, I I truly believe here in the states there were there were more. He was never actually completely linked to. But I I think that. Uh, he's guilty of more yes than he admitted to right i mean he he, i mean he did promise that it was only 16 but was he around in any other areas other than spokane where he might have or walla walla where he might have killed people i mean other than out of the country right right he was uh in alabama for many years in a post he was in texas he has been almost in, in almost every Army post that had anything to do with aviation because he was a helicopter pilot. And I think there's other cases that he could be linked to if they would go back and look through his time served and when he was at certain posts because there's times where he would just go missing for a couple of days and there's no no link to where he was at. And to me, it almost seems like it could be traced back. And even though he says he's telling all that he's done from a Christian perspective, I can't help but wonder if there's still not more. Still not more, right. And I don't know if he's afraid of being tried elsewhere out of the state of Washington or 
for, but I definitely believe there's more in the U.S. alone. Right, because he could be tried somewhere else where the death penalty, at, you know, Texas or some of these other states Correct. where he could be put to death. But he did have a kind of conversion after his arrest. He was arrested April 18th, 2000. But he, and, and, and a significant part of your book, details his 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 return. He, he had kind of bounced in and out of Christi, you know, Christian influence, but his return to a life of faith. And uh, can you talk about how that has affected him and, and your conversation with him? Well, as a Christian myself, we've, We've talked in great detail about it, but at one time he said he really made a pact with the devil, and uh, that's when he was at his lowest, and I don't think until he was fully incarcerated and knew he wasn't getting out that he turned to that, which you hear a lot of that, in, in no way am I being judgmental, I think anything can happen for anyone, but I think he might not have had that conversion if he had not been imprisoned. Right, interesting. So it was... While he was in prison, it gave him time to ruminate. But uh, right, when he made a pact with the devil, was it something very conscious that he was was he into the that kind of more occultism? I, I didn't understand. You know, I didn't see that in your book. It's towards the, one of the last chapters when he's talking more in depth, uh, word for word, and he said one night he woke up and he was laying in bed with his wife and he started praying to Satan that if. Satan would give him all the power on this earth to allow him to have total dominance over women. He would forever, you know, be a follower of the devil. And at that time, he said he almost felt like, even though he had already committed murders and did awful things, that it was compounded. And he felt unstoppable. And that was his words, and I always found that uh, intriguing, as some of the other ones I've talked with at that moment, they feel unstoppable and uh, that was the moment where he uh, kind of climaxed with some of his kills getting closer together there in Washington State. Right and you had written in the book that he was a frequent purveyor of prostitutes and that he had killed you know many of them month after month but uh, he had yeah. you had written that he had been with some of them multiple times like 400 women over a period of a short period of uh, time, it seemed like three or four years. I mean, so he that he was very right. active, you know, in that. In he that, was. Yeah. If they were uh, doing a lot of drugs together, he was doing a lot of cocaine and things, uh, meth related, something to speed him up. And at that time, he said even some of the prostitutes he would get with, he might not have sex, but they would do sexual acts together, and then they would do the drugs and sleep for so many hours, and then leave, and then he would come back to them. And with all of his experiences, I think he's put them all kind of together. And uh, a very interesting point uh, that he has told me since the book has been released, he's always had a very good relationship with the majority of his family. It's kind of falling apart right now, but his father is still alive. And he had always told his father that he had never went back and had sex with any of the corpses. And it has came out as of recent that they've proven that he did. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of been a little bit of a falling apart for him just in the last few months uh, because he had always said he wasn't a necrophiliac. And uh, now it's been proven and he's had to come clean that he did that. And I think that's been, I think, his... 
demise, not that he hadn't already had one, but I think now that he's lost some of his family over that, he's always swore to them he had never done that. Right. So that far. So it was right. an element of him being still being deceptive even after his arrest and conversion. Oh, yeah. Is that yeah? So um, yes. And so he he has what like a, a I forgot how big like he has a four hundred he he's never getting out of jail he's got a four hundred year sentence or something like that right 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 he was on death but uh, they commuted that at the end of uh, twenty eighteen to life and without the possibility of parole I think that was for all Washington State uh, death cases gotcha and when you went went through or communicated with him and went through his journals the diaries what other uh, information did you come across of interest. Well, he experienced something, I think, as a, as a young child that was uh, life-changing. I think he felt dominated, and at that time, I think his whole perspective on humans changed. Uh, there was a neighborhood boy, I think, if I recall correctly, he was 13, uh, and Robert was around 10 at the time, and the young boy started uh, trying to lure him over to an abandoned uh, building in their neighborhood and first let him in. It was like a grooming process, I think, that happened with Robert. And he ended up uh, molesting Robert and then it would progress and he would defecate on Robert and try to make him be the total submissive. And I can't help but believe when he was telling this that there was a turning point even at, at his young age, you know, uh, around 10 that changed his entire life at that time. And he said he was so humiliated he didn't reach out for help. He didn't tell his parents or a sibling or anything. And I think that changed him forever at that young age. It's not an excuse by any means, but I think that was a turning point right. for him. I mean, you refer to him in the book as Tommy, this this very negative yes. impact, but very graphic fetish-type uh, events. If, if Yates is telling the truth, it's pretty... How could it uh, yeah. traumatizing to have to go through that with, uh, you know, while you're oh, 10? Um, oh, I agree. I think it did. Well, anything else that you, uh, of note when you read, read through his, uh, his notes or his, his diaries? Well, I found it, I think he's honest to an extent. Like most killers, they're, they're very arrogant and they want to brag on their good deeds and downplay their bad deeds. And I think even if released today, he would kill again. And I think genuinely with him coming across and trying to to be honest, I just he would still kill again. And I think with some of his life sentences in, in his journal that he was talking to me about that he didn't want to put in the book, I just get the the gut feeling he couldn't control that urge as much as he would want to, to do it, he couldn't. And I still think he has that need to dominate, and that's the scary part, that he would definitely kill again. But he, I mean, he had, it was kind of strange, he was almost like a Jekyll and Hyde character, because he had other, yeah, other relationships with women that were seemingly normal, and then, you know, these prostitutes somehow became lesser or something, or, or able, I mean, and he would... He, I mean, he always would shoot them. It was very uh, disturbing, like very violent uh, behavior towards his victims. Right. It, it it was almost like something just came over him, and at that moment he had to take their life because a lot of the, the 
part that also rang true with me that he couldn't fight off his urges was he was taking his daughter to work where he was picking up some of these prostitutes. She lived, uh, worked in a uh, restaurant at a night waitressing job. And he would still be within a couple of blocks of his daughter's workplace abducting these women and taking them back or in the van assaulting them and then still shooting them in the head and still then could go pick up his daughter from work and go home like he had been this great father uh, helping his daughter along her, you know, just her daily routine. And that was just shocking to me how you could be trying to take care of your child and take a life all within the same night. And that was nothing to him to do that. I mean, to all, to all outward appearances, he was just kind of a normal father with children and job. And he had actually, I mean, one of the things that was scary about it is he had buried one of his victims underneath or right next to where he, his master bedroom, right where he slept and the police didn't find it until he confessed. Right. Right. Well, they ended up finding her, but she, he had actually, that victim, he had given his wife the jacket that she had wore from that victim. He had taken the jacket from the victim, gave it to his wife as a gift, and had buried her in the yard. And they didn't initially find her, but then, of course, when they, they basically ripped up the yard and the house, and they ended up finding her then. Melody Murphy. That was the only victim, yes, on his property. Why did what was the rationale about why he had to bury her on the property? It just you was, know, he's never said, but I uh, thought it was strange that it was just her. Yeah, I and mean, uh, I mean, I'm not sure. Yeah. It's typically because he would take them out into the woods, right? Or um, that was where he uh, would put his victims. Yes, yeah, sometimes he would. You know, uh, the first couple he killed was in the woods, but then the prostitutes. A lot of times, he would kill them in his van, and then. Of course, he was famously arrested in the, the white Corvette, which I thought was so odd, as intelligent as he is, to drive around in such a flashy vehicle, picking up prostitutes there towards the end. But I think it was how out of control he was on drugs and uh, not thinking as, as one time as methodical as he used to be. But yes, he would kill in some dump on the side of the road or different places, yes. It, he didn't have a necessarily specific area. Gotcha. Yeah, and you had said he had been commended so many so many times in the military that I think he had an 18-year career after working as a corrections officer, right? Right, yes. Yes, he joined in 1977 and uh, almost served 19 years in the military and was a helicopter pilot and uh, had to, he was extremely, extremely intelligent and Till at the end, I think his arrogance took over and dominated his intelligence. If that makes any sense, it took over. He was much more. He was less calculating there at the end. Why do you? Was there anything or indicator about you know why he wanted to have power over women? Was there anything you read in his past or anything about why why he had that? Not necessarily, because he always seemed to talk very highly of his mother, and most of the time you hear of an abused. Uh, you know, abuse children that turn up or have hatred towards the, the female in their life. But he never talked of that, so I'm not, I never did understand why uh, he hated women. And then he had daughters, which is also shocking to me to have a daughter. And then one of his youngest victims was 
just 16 years old, and that was one of his daughters was 16 years old. Mm-hmm. So that never, he has never really said or through all of his journals and diaries has never really added up to me. Um, no, he didn't have that hate towards someone. Right. Are you still in contact with him? Yes, and, yes. And what is his opinion of your completed book? He he really likes it. He told me he appreciated it and that he thought uh, that I would tell it in his words, and which I tried to do. And I also wanted to make sure I didn't exploit the victims or, or anything like that. That was the most important thing, and he knew that going in. And uh, he seems pleased with it, actually. And, uh, I mean, you were... You kind of avoided getting into really graphic details about uh, the kind of gory aspects of these cases. And there was another book, I think it was Mark Furman of O.J. Simpson Infamy, wrote a book called Murder in Spokane, or Spokane. And uh, do you know what Robert Yates' opinion of that book was? You know, he's not. I have read that one, and I'm familiar with it, but Robert never spoke directly concerning it. Um, I think on this one, he will need to focus on him trying to be a better person. But like I said, he still admits he couldn't be that better person, and he would kill again if released. Um, and he had asked me, but I'd already told him, even if you wanted to go into graphic detail on this book, seeing as how it's kind of Christian-based, I'm not going to exploit the victims. Right. So that was kind of an agreement we both did on that. I wanted to kind of try to highlight that... They were just good people that were in bad situations that got their lives took way too soon. Yeah, and I think one of the points you made was that they were all got involved in drugs, and that's what made them vulnerable, was really this Mm -hmm. kind of uh, plague of drugs led to, you know, really unfortunate choices, which led them into the hands of a predator. Um, Right. Right. The... uh, the exception of the first two, though, that the couple that was just out in the woods, they were both just outstanding students, starting college, doing all these wonderful things, and he just walked upon them and decided to take their lives. So they had never had any, any kind of negative uh, drugs, any alcohol, nothing at all. They just were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Gotcha. And you read Furman's book. What was your opinion? Did you find it to be overly salacious or uh, different? He he never had any contact with uh, Yates, correct? I, t- I don't know if Mark has or I don't know if he has or not, but I, I think the book was good. It was so very salacious and in, in, in more gruesome detail than I wanted to do to do with that one. In, the, in my next book, it's going to be more detailed, but in this, on Roberts, it just didn't seem like the right thing. It's gotcha. right, you know, it's well, time to go into. Well, tell me about what you're working on that right now. What is your next book? Um, it's on Philip Jablonski. He's uh, serving death row at San Quentin. And uh, Jablonski caught my attention because he didn't have a certain victimology. He, uh, if it was a man or a woman or a child, if he wanted to kill you at that time, he, he, he took your life. And he was very gruesome. Um, he was a necrophiliac as well from time to time. He even, uh, his, he told me he always had the need to taste a small part of each of his victims. Uh, mm-hmm. If it was a female, it was if it, it would be her nipple, or if it was a, a male, um, it was also in his private area. And he's just very gruesome. And, and when- he was also in the military, and... Uh, actually earned a Purple Heart. He's at Fall of Saigon. 
and all these different things, and he still was grateful. Do you do you believe that some of these experiences, both uh, Jablonski and Yates had in the military, made them have a different attitude towards violence? You know, I don't think so with them. Uh, I think Jablonski, he did come from a horrible, horrible childhood, uh, abused by both mother and father, molested at a young age, and when he told his father uh, he was molested, he was age six, and he was molested by a cousin who was babysitting him, uh, his father beat him severely. And he told me at that point, at age six, I thought, I will never tell the truth again to uh, an adult. And that's kind of, I think, all of his violence and anger came from his childhood. And then he wanted to be a policeman, and that's, he was, it was the 60s and the draft and all this was going on. And he had actually started community college because he thought if he could become a cop, he would learn how to cover up his tracks and not get arrested because he still had the, he had already raped and things at this time. And uh, he couldn't pull the grades in. So he decided to join the army and served. Uh, I think he served around four years and came home, and then it was just horrible from that point on because he's killed several people that they've never necessarily linked into right. that I truly believe he he committed. So he yeah. is. Uh, I mean, he's not four feet. Uh, did he ever admit to any of his crimes before he was committed or convicted? Excuse me. Oh, yes, he has. And I asked him when I interviewed him um, at St. Quentin, I said, do you mind if I go forward with, uh, there's two cold cases that he's committed that I've really tried to research and study on. And they're, they're almost too detailed, in my opinion, to be made up. And he said, no, I don't mind you going forward. I'm already on death row. And he said, they're not going to retry me. He said, they're not going to spend the taxpayer dollars. They're not going to do it because these or 30-year-old murders, what else are they going to get from me? And he's right. They, I mean, he, he has nothing to lose at this point, so that's why I don't think he minds being forthcoming and open with what he's doing. And when did you visit San Quentin to interview him? I interviewed him last October at uh, San Quentin, and we had a, actually we had a full-contact visit, which was a little bit different because initially I was told he should be behind glass and it didn't turn out to be that way since I flew in from out of state they ended up giving us five hours together so that was that was really good uh, I don't know if you've ever interviewed at San Quentin but you're just no. in a small cage it's not a cell it's like a cage and uh, you can't take in pen or paper or anything like that you can only take in uh, your ID in a clear plastic baggie with some $1 bills. You can't take in anything else, no phone, no nothing. And uh, it was it was an eye-opening experience, to say the least, but I'm really glad I was able to do it, and I'm hoping to be able to go back, hopefully, in the summer. When do you think you'll publish this book? Well, I'm working on it. I'm hoping for it to be completed by the end of this year. Gotcha. And so, yes, for people who don't know, San Quentin is where all the death penalty cases used to go i don't you know I, I don't i can't remember when i think the death penalty here was in california was commuted in the early 70s if i remember correctly is that correct well you know i i think we actually they actually had an execution um after that mm -hmm. but even though they had the death penalty obviously they never use it which i think is a shame um i'm pro death penalty if, if you're proven guilty uh, i think you should be executed
put. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. I don't think that they're going to commute. He, he talked that he... Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It got rumor from his lawyer that some of these death sentences, or all the death sentences, might be commuted to life without the possibility of parole. But I don't, I don't think that'll happen, but you never know. Gotcha. And you've also been um, in contact with other other murders and occult crimes. I have kind of an interest myself. I covered and uh, was involved in, in researching the West Memphis Three, the occult murder of three yeah. eight-year-old boys in West Memphis. My book, Abomination, Devil Worship, and Deception, and I, yeah, I yeah. included in that book uh, little segments about other occult-motivated killers, one being the Ripper Crew, uh, outside of mm-hmm. Chicago, and you've been in contact with some members of the Ripper Crew, is that correct? Yes, I talked to Robin Geck and Edward Spotcher weekly. Um, I've talked with them for at least four years now, too, and they're very interesting. I find Robin to be extremely intelligent. Uh, Edward, though, out of all the killers I've excuse me, talked with, I think uh, Edward is the only one that might should be institutionalized instead of imprisoned. I genuinely think he has mental problems that should have been addressed years ago. And that's just my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely interesting. When you're communicating, I mean, Robin Gecht has denied being involved in any murders um, from the time right. he was arrested to the present. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. And, they and he, w- he tells me that. He's innocent. He still says he's innocent. So when you're talking to him, he still claims innocent. Innocence. Does he ever, or have you inquired with him about his occult interests? I have. You know, we've discussed it, but when we initially started discussing his occult interests, he uh, told me that he had never been into the dark imagery and the dark rituals and everything that they claimed that they had. But something very interesting I find uh, with Robin is, he mailed me some um, paperwork that he had filed with his lawyer several years back because he was had pleaded, there was severe police brutality and even though he was beat, he never conceded. He all he still said his guilt or that he was innocent. Still I'm sorry, innocent. he never said he was guilty. 
and so so even under duress and him being beat up, uh, he hasn't. One of the one of the Ripper crew was put to death. It's kind of odd because one of the bro- there were two brothers, Andrew and Thomas Cor Corcoralis or Corcoralis, but one was put to death and the other is about to be paroled, and that popped up. I know my, that. Yeah, so, oh my word. Yeah. So, That's so crazy to me. Yes, all that as well. Yeah, he has a tentative parole date sometime this year. So it's very, that's a very odd case. And they're responsible for at least 18 victims, women abducted, ra- I mean, just horrible things, bo- uh, abuse yes. to the body. And I think Robin Geck was keeping body parts and things like that. So it was super, very graphic. But the, I right. think that, I don't know where they, the testimony was about his occult interest, but I be- do believe that there were, rituals and there was a ritual kind of place where they had kind of a, an altar correct yes robin told me that they uh that the police made the accusations that upstairs in his home in the attic they had a small box where they had kept some of the women's breasts that had been uh removed during the murders and they uh the police accused uh the four of the, the crew members that they then would go up, pull out a satanic Bible, and do rituals around the remaining body parts. Mm-hmm. And he denies that and says, uh, you know, that my wife would have had smelled something. You know, he was married at the time. Um, his wife always said he was innocent, that he was home when these uh, events took place. But they have, yes, they've said that they've used uh, the body parts, specifically the breast, for for rituals. rituals and they were it was Levey's satanic bible that they were using right i'm sorry was it anton Levey's satanic bible that they were using as an occult reference work yes it was okay. a satanic, satanic bible and he said that uh, they said that they used piano wire to sever some of the breasts where it would be a clean cut that that was supposedly important in the ritual for it to be a a, a clean right, even yes. mutilation as yeah. awful as that sounds Right. So, yeah, so those rituals were giving them power. And, uh, yeah, I mean, right. So, and, but they were, they were working as kind of like, uh, contractors, right? That was kind of their front and, and why they had a van and everything like that, correct? But it was. Mm -hmm. Robin did a lot of electrical work and did some sweet air, and, uh, they were basically just handyman. Handyman, right. The other three were part of his crew. He was the boss. He really was the boss, yeah. He was a little older than everybody, if I remember correctly. He was, yes. But, you know, it said that he had worked with John Wayne Gacy, but he told me that that is uh, fictional as well and that nobody's ever been able to prove that he ever worked for John Wayne Gacy, not in murdering people, but as in uh, a regular job. Right. And he denies that he ever worked for Gacy, but that's... That's been thrown out there. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. I have, or not, yeah. I've heard that's that. That's been thrown out for you. What, are, what do you think about that? Do you think he did? I don't know, but I do believe that Gacy did not act alone. I think that he was actually involved oh, with a group. Pardon me? Agreed? Oh, I agree with oh, you. Oh, yeah, yes. right. So I, don't, I think that he was busted, but I think that he was actually a procurer of young boys and with his right. social contacts, and I think that that was, they just a, made him a, serial, a lone serial killer. And I don't believe that right. that was the case. Um, so, so there was other people who got away. I don't think. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he had connections and had other people. And I think we know that Gacy did have people who worked for him. Correct. Yes, I, I think. Oh, for sure, he had people that worked for him. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, who else have you, other than the Ripper crew, there were some names on your bio of people that you're also um, in contact with who I didn't know about. Can you talk about them? Yes. Um, I speak with uh, Carl Drew um, out of Massachusetts, and uh, Jose Reyes is my youngest uh, killer that I that I talk with, and he was a satanic killer out of Texas. He was actually just 17 when he committed the crime. It was him and another uh, fellow student who murdered a, their 15-year-old uh, fellow student. And he had went and sold his soul to the devil. And the, or this is what he said. And uh, what they did to this young lady was just horrendous. And uh, when they found her, she had a upside-down cross carved into her stomach. And... Uh, it was gruesome. One of the most gruesome I'm even familiar with. It was terrible. And he is serving life in Abilene, Texas, and he's in total uh, solitary confinement at the moment. He uh, went in as such a young young person, and I don't know the exact measure what took place that they had to put him in total solitary, but that's where he's at now, and he's supposed to be there at least for another year. And he's only like 20 years old right now, still very young. Right. And that and happened very now recently. That he, yeah. Happened in 2014, right? The murder occurred in 2014. Yes, right. yes. And he's just so young to have fallen this deep into something like this. Do you know how, how he started his occult practices? When he and I were, have been talking, he told me that he just came from a real difficult upbringing. He was in uh, uh, school, uh, like a, not juvenile hall, but like a school, I can't think, alternative school. And uh, he didn't have much of a father in his life. And he got into drugs and selling drugs to make ends meet. He got affiliated with the gang. Things still weren't going well for him. Um, he said he got into dark music and uh, got deeper and deeper into it. He thought it was like bringing him some sort of peace and some sort of comfort that he wasn't getting out of everyday life. And one night decided to sell his soul to the devil, just in those terms. And he told the other young man that committed the murder with him that he could also sell his soul to the devil if he chose to. But he had to help him murder the the 15-year-old young girl. And that's basically what happened gotcha. and after a night of partying and drinking and drugs and so then carl drew he was out of massachusetts he was also a satanist who um, literally sacrificed people right yes i guess out of everyone i've spoke with carl is the only one i've questioned his uh, guilt or innocence i can't help but wonder because he came from uh, i think he was a pimp and i do think he was part of a prostitution ring, but I cannot help but believe the female that was involved with him was the actual, uh, the ringleader. Uh, her name was Robin Murphy, and she was actually paroled several years back, but had a parole violation and was uh, reincarcerated. But I can't help but question Carl's guilt. I think uh, he already had a rap sheet, and I think this was in the hysteria of all the satanics. Uh, everything on the news back in the 80s and I think that he was desperate for a criminal 
and he kind of fit the bill and was arrested. He may be completely guilty of, I know there's good proof, but there's also a lot of questions. But there was another woman, yeah, there was another woman that he was with, right, that uh, was also, she was kind of a very troubled kind of witch type figure, correct, if I remember correctly? Well, yeah. That was Robin Murphy, and then they had uh, Karen Marsden, I think, that that was killed that night, was Robin's girlfriend. So they were lesbians, and it was part of the prostitution ring, and there was something to do with the girl who was killed wouldn't take her ring off. And it goes back to just something very freaky and very strange, and they, whoever was there that night, cut her finger off to obtain the ring, and then it was a sacrifice, and yes, terrible things. Right, and she, I think Murphy, that he was using kind of strange chants or strange language, some type of occult language while he was committing the murder, is that correct? That's mm-hmm. what I've been told, yes. Gotcha. And she still kind of denies being fully of an occult member, but she said she is, so. Right. And they, they uh, I mean, this, I've done a, a whole show on the landing report because... According to the FBI, there's no such thing as occult-motivated crimes, and all of the pedophilia associated with any occult group is really, the, the occultism is merely a cover for uh, pedo rings. What's your opinion of the Lanning Report? Well, I disagree with it. I think there's a lot of jobs for, for satanic killings. I do agree that the pedo rings are huge right now. I think human trafficking is, is horrible right now, but I think the satanic killers are still out there. I do think it's dropped from the late 70s to mid-90s. I think it, it kind of hit its peak in that 15 to 20 year span. But I definitely think it's motivated. I do think people, as in Robert, he prayed to the devil, if you give me power over these women, I do think it's a driving force. And I don't think a lot of times people want to accept it, whether it be police or uh, just everyday people because it's so scary. Right. I mean, the killer's bad enough, but dealing with your cold and demons and hell is taking it to another level. And I, I think it, I think their finding is false, but who am I to say that? I, I think it's very prevalent in today's society, unfortunately. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and you also, one other group that you had contact with was the Vampire Clan out of Kentucky, right? Well, I can't remember the guy's name. It, uh, uh, Roderick Farrell. Roderick Farrell, yes. 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 I have. Um, he didn't really go into a lot of detail, but he actually came out of Murray, Kentucky, which isn't all that far from uh, where I'm at either. And I think his mother brought him into it, though, very early on, and I think he had a very twisted relationship with his mother. I think she was almost sexually attracted to him uh, from my research, and I think... Uh, you know, she found a, a carved pentagram, I know, in his room at one time, and, and to question him about it, she, she loved it, and he believed in drinking blood, made you immortal, like right. you do see on televisions and movies, you know. Yeah, he called himself a vampire, like uh, some kind, he really yeah. thought he was a vampire, and I think the mother was arrested for a relationship with one of his friends, if I remember correctly. Because I researched she, that she case. Was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yes, she I think, was the, I think the teenager was just 14 at the time that she was arrested for the relationship with. Yeah, so, and he took on, I think Roderick Farrell took on the name of a demon from the Goetia, Visago, or Fizago was kind of his cult name. And there's actually video of some of the other clan members out at night drinking each other's blood, cutting each other, eating rare meat. Yeah. Like very, 
uh, unsavory practices. So there's, there still was something very dark about him. And he, I think he admitted, Roderick did, that eventually he was going to kill somebody. And they ended up traveling, I think, to Florida and killing one of the clan's mom and dad. Or he did. They did. Yeah. So. Yes. It was his girlfriend, I think, at the time, her parents. Right. And uh, I'm right. not sure if you researched it, but the, the friend that was also in there with Roderick at the time said just this look of pure evil came over him as he was about to kill her father. Yeah. And he said it was almost like he transformed right there. And I do believe that evil can possess people and take them over. And I do think his being a vampire and or truly believing he was a vampire took over his entire existence. Yeah, I think so. I think he came out of a fantasy. There was some kind of role-playing game they used to play, and then it just became yeah. real in their minds. It, it, it flipped. And, uh, yeah, oh, it was yeah. very... And I think he got the death penalty, and that was commuted, so he's very fortunate. And he was also like many other satanic killers where they mock the police and they mock the media. So there's all these... Like Ricky Casso, I think out of Massachusetts or somewhere like Connecticut, was the same thing where they're just gloating and making strange faces and rambling on like they're possessed. It's really crazy. Yes, yes. I think they, they thrived on that and they loved that dark imagery and they wanted yeah. to become that. So if they, they could see themselves on television yeah. mocking the people and looking like this pure evil creature, it, it gave them a high. Gives them a high. And the Damien Eccles of the West Memphis Three blowing kisses to the families and really strange, you know, flipping people off while he's being, you know, on right. trial for murder. It's incredible, yeah. So these guys all share kind of similar, somewhat similar traits. Yes, I agree. Well, we're at 45 minutes. It's gone very fast. Where can You have a very active Twitter page, correct? Yes. And what's how can people uh, see your post and stuff like that? What is it, Murder Journals? Um, it is, yes. It's Murder Journals, and then it's at Minnie Alford 16. Gotcha. M-I-N-N-I-E-L-F-O-R-D 16. And the title of the book that we kind of opened our sh the show was Robert Yates from Darkness to Light, published last year, March 29th. I highly recommend that book. And uh, you're going to publish another book on Philip Jablonski, uh, hopefully by the end of this year. Is there anything else that... Uh, the listeners should know or you want to cover? Well, I just appreciate this opportunity. I, I'm thankful to get the word out there, and I, I do like drawing attention to this, and, and hopefully everybody knows that the true uh, passion, I hope, behind people like what you and I do is to get victims closure and, and bring awareness to people and that there is darkness out there, but there is a greater light. And uh, that that's my main goal. Amen. Amen to that. Awesome. Again, Minnie Alford, thank you so much. Thank you so much. You have a wonderful evening. You as well. Okay, we're done. I'm just going to stop the I'm going to stop the recording.